Section number 19 of The Lion's Brood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lion's Brood by Duffield Osborne. Section number 19. The House of the Nine Solaris. The rustle of garments aroused Marcia from a sleep wherein had been more of bitter reverie than of rest, and, glancing up, she saw, at the entrance of her apartment, two girls, evidently slaves. They had knelt with arms crossed upon their breasts and downcast eyes. Will my mistress be pleased to place herself in the hands of her servants, that she may receive refreshment and whatsoever she desires? The girl's voice was soft and musical. Marcia rose, and with a slight inclination of the head, indicated her acquiescence. Then, as she followed her new guides through new halls and rooms, around and through the colonnade, to a part of the house beyond the garden, there were the apartments of the bath, and, under the skillful hands of her attendants, she felt the fatigue and blights of the journey passing from her. No such artists of luxury were known at Rome as were these slave women of Capua. New refinements were revealed at every step, refinements that seemed to culminate when the hairdresser began her work. First came the anointing with the richest odors deftly combined from a dozen vials of ivory and fine glass, then the crimping and curling with hot irons, the touch of which served also, as the attendant explained, to consume whatever coarseness clung to the perfumes and to bring out their finest and most delicate effects. Meanwhile, the Roman simplicity of Marcia's wardrobe and jewel case had been thoroughly explored, not without some scornful side glances on the part of the Capuan women. And she who was in charge of the tiring announced their contents to be quite inadequate to dress a lady for a banquet of state, an announcement which brought more smiles than blushes to Marcia's face. Still, despite her half-veiled contempt, there was nothing to do but resign herself absolutely into the hands of such competent authorities, and besides, she could not say that she found the process altogether displeasing. The elaborate structure of curls and frizzes had now been confined in place by a net of fine gold thread, in which were set, at regular intervals, pearls remarkable for their color in perfect spherical form. Then a dozen long pins with carved gold heads were passed through the net, and above and around all was bound a diadem of thin beaten gold ornamented with intricate open-work tracery. Finally, the hairdresser, having bade Marcia behold herself in the polished silver mirror which she held up, retired with an expression of serene self-appropriation upon her face, and gave way to other attendants. One of these bound the smallest of jeweled sandals upon feet that were too small, even for them. Another produced a long pala or sleeveless tunic of apple tint ornamented with feather patterns and fastened it with amethyst brooches on the shoulders. Last, the head tire woman herself came to perform what was, after the hairdressing, the most delicate of all these operations. The adjustment of the cyclas or overrobe, a garment of the finest texture and of a shade known as wax color, through which the tint and ornamentations of the pala produced an effect of imitable beauty, a slender vine-work design, embroidered in gold, bordered the cyclas and it was in arranging so that the course of this would form harmonious lines, wherein the skill and difficulty of the task mainly lay. A final appeal to the mirror followed, and then, with Marcia's approval, the work was over. She was robed, indeed, for a Capuan banquet, and in a manner her simple Roman taste had never dreamed of. As yet Calavius had not returned, she sat in the portico of the garden, awaiting him, and time was now afforded her to think of her plans, the risks she ran, and the objects to be gained. Not since the resolve had first found place in her mind had she wavered and feared as now, and an intolerable repugnance began to possess her. Darkness had veiled the city for several hours, but it was the darkness of a southern night 
and of a city in a festal mood. The stars seemed to stand out from the blue-gray vault above, as if reaching down to the earth, whether in pity or anger she could not tell. Around the city itself hung the luminous aura of its lights. The cries of revelers sounded from the neighboring streets, even the rush of feet, while to the eastward the glow of the Carthaginian watchfires seemed to reach upward to meet the rays of the stars. Yes, these were hostile to the invaders. She knew it now. They were the glittering points of Roman Pila descending upon the foe, Pila driven by the hands that moldered amid the red mire of Cannae. Surely those men approved of what she was about to do. Was not Sergius among them? And would he not will her to make good, by her beauty, what the sacrifice of his own strength had failed to accomplish? What interest had he, now, in her as a woman? As a mistress? As a wife? Greater thoughts must inspire the shade that was once her lover. Their common city, its life and power, the destiny of the world that descended upon the preservation of both of these. And still she could not banish the feeling of doubt, of disapproval. Perhaps Calavius would not return. Or perhaps he might not be able to gain for her such permission to attend the banquet? A commotion at the street entrance, the sound of approaching footsteps, and the rustle of a gown seemed about to answer her question. The next moment her host stood before her and surveyed with astonished approval the appearance she presented. You are very beautiful, he said slowly, as if thinking with regret that he was surrendering such perfection for mere influence and power. I have spoken of you and your wish. And Stenius and Pesuvius? The Nini Solaris consent to your presence. The litters await us in the vestibule, and it is time that we set out. Marcia rose, and he led her back through the halls and courts. Who will be there? she asked, as they approached the street door. All of a special note, except Vibius Verus and Marius Blusius. They are away, busied about other matters of state. Mago has just also departed on a mission to Carthage. There will be no companions save our hosts, myself, my son Perola, and Jubelius Torea, the bravest of our horsemen. Of our good allies, you shall see Hasdrubal, Maharbal, Hannibal the fighter, Selenius the Sicilian, who was to write the history of the wars, Idilcar, the priest of Melkarth, and the great captain-general himself. Come, let us hasten, said Marcia quickly, as if fearful lest her resolution might forsake her while there was just yet chance to withdraw. A moment later, and Calavius had assisted her into a gorgeously comparisoned litter, she hardly noticed the rabble that thronged around the door as she passed out, and whom the slaves of her host seemed to keep back with difficulty. Still, she was conscious of nudgings, looks, and gestures that made her blush. Though the words that accompanied them were unintelligible, Calavius was furious and paused, as if to give orders for harsher repression. Then a voice called out in coarse jargon, half Latin, half Campanian. She is pretty, my Pesuvius. Venus grant her to restore your youth. With an effort, he twisted his features into a smile. May the gods favor your wish, my friend, he said. Then, plunging into his litter, he clapped his hands for the bearers to proceed, and, lying back among the cushions, ground his teeth in rage. Ah, I must play to them. Now. Later I shall remember and know how to avenge. The lump of filth. Who knows, though, but that he speak wisdom. Perhaps I am truly giving up the hope of my youth to others. Meanwhile, the bearers were running swiftly through the streets, that is, as swiftly as the crowds in their condition of humor permitted. Torches gleamed everywhere, and from time to time, as the curtains parted slightly, Marcia caught glimpses of the scene. The city had abandoned itself to the wildest debauchery, a debauchery that at the time had seemed more about the desire to drown unpleasant thoughts and haunting fears than of a spontaneous exultion or mirth, and their drunkenness seemed but a garment, thrown over the head to shut out the approaching specter of Roman retribution. All Capua presented to her the spectacular results of a turbulent democracy exalted to power, 
for the vagaries of the Roman plebeians seemed as nothing beside the unbridled insolence of the populace. Here was Pesuvius Calavius, who had triumphed by their aid over a senate more than half in sympathy with Rome, and now, recognizing his litter, they thronged around it, calling out familiar greetings, or even sheer vulgarities, pulling the curtains aside, kissing their hands to him, and, from time to time, compelling his bearers to pause while they slobbered drunken kisses upon his garments in person. No sign of true respect greeted their leader. It seemed as if the mob recognized him only as the creature of its whim, to be upheld as a facile puppet, or cast down by the first savage gust of discontent. As for Calavius himself, he too fell readily into the part assigned to him. His face was wreathed in a constant smile, his lips spoke only compliments, his hands waved greetings until, at last, Marcia laid back, and closing her eyes, refused to see more of her host's degradation. Suddenly the litter-bearers paused and set down their burdens. In distance the journey had been short, but the many enforced halts had made it seem as if the whole city had been traversed. They were now before the porch of a house that was, if possible, even more magnificent than that of Calavius. Every column was twined with garlands, flowers hung in festoons from the architrave, incense streamed up from the brazen tripods set on either side of the entrance. In front and around the entire insula, the streets were packed dense with a seething crowd, save only for a small space before the vestibule, where was stationed a guard of Africans equipped in the manner of Roman legionnaires. These were rude, wiry soldiers, scornful of civilians and their fancied rights, but above all, contemptuous of the soft companion mob that arrogated so much and could command so little. At first the populace had tried to browbeat and play with them, when the soldiers had sallied out into the street and killed a couple of the most talkative, wounding half a dozen more. Now the cowardly Capuans stand back in awe, giving passage wherever the strangers called for it, and hardly daring to whisper among themselves as to what manner of rule they had invited to destroy them. Were it not for this summary treatment, it is doubtful whether any of the guests would have been able to gain entrance, least of all Calavius, who was looked upon as their peculiar creation and mouthpiece, and at whom a hundred complaints were volleyed, in low voices, be it said, as he made his slow way through the press. Glad to escape at last from a position at once embarrassing and dangerous, he now made haste to escort Marcia between the files of foreign guards into the atrium, where the Nine Solaris, smiling hosts, had stationed themselves to receive the guests that had been bidden to so important a festivity. Thence he led her, muffled as she was, to a vestarium opening to the left side, where were already some half-dozen women whose attendants were adding the finishing graces to toilets disarranged in the litters. One of these was assigned to Marcia's aid, but a few touches to her hair and a slight readjustment of the cyclists were all that were needed. Meanwhile, the Roman was watching, with deep interest, the group in the court of the atrium. She had taken a position from which she could have an unobstructed view through the doorway, and her attendant had evidently informed herself as to the identity of the strangers, and was anxious to win approval by communicating her knowledge. That is he, most beautiful lady, the one with the long white tunic at the right of my master's. Is he not poorly dressed for so great a man? Who would imagine him of any consequence at all? While the girl spoke, Marcia was regarding earnestly, and for the time, the chief of Carthage, the conqueror of Trebia, and the Trimacius and Cannae, and Sempronius, and Flamanius, and Varro, she saw a man slightly above the middle height, well-built and strong, aquiline figures, and thick black curling beard and hair though the latter was worn away at the temples by constant pressure of the helmet. It was a face that combined deep thought, immeasurable pride, and absolute self-poise and inscrutability. A face that would have been handsome but for the disfiguring effect of the eye lost in the marshes of the Arnus. 
Perhaps it was just this that lent it something of its prevailing expression of sadness. Perhaps it was a realization of responsibilities met and to be met, and a premonition of the inevitable end. His dress was, as the maid had so scornfully commented, plain in the extreme, a striking contrast to the celebrated magnificence of his armor and military equipment, now a simple, white, tunic-like garment, relieved by a narrow border of gold descended to his feet, while a slender gold fillet was his sole ornament in addition to the seal finger ring and heavy earrings, which he wore in common with his companions. The latter formed a group hardly less interesting than their leader, and the girl pointed them out, one by one, and made her approving or slurring comments. There was Hasdrubal, coarse-featured, middle-sized, and corpulent, whose garments gleamed with purple and gold, and whose ears, fingers, and neck glittered with a profusion of jewels. Him, Marcia's informant, evidently regarded with admiration approaching to awe. Although his skill as a manager of the commissariat, and his exploits as a soldier when occasion demanded, were probably unknown to her. Maharbal, slight and agile, with plain dark robe and a few jewels, with hair dressed high, diadem of plumes, and a beard worn forked in the Numidian fashion, attracted but passing comment. He was doubtless a savage from the desert and of little wealth. Another of the generals, however, seemed to arouse more positive sentiments. A giant in size, with scarlet tunic, and loaded with gold chains and rings and gems, his dark, ferocious face towered above the heads of his companions. The woman's voice sank to a whisper as she said, That is the one they call Hannibal the Fighter. They say he never spares an enemy, that he eats the flesh of those he kills. May the gods grant that my masters wean him tonight from the love of such hideous barbaric fare. And yet, with all their horror, Marcia almost smiled to note how the girl looked upon this brute with more of a woman's feeling for a man she bestowed upon any of his better favored and more famous compatriots. From these four the Roman's eyes wandered to a fifth Carthaginian, who seemed to complete the tale of guests of this nationality. Her informant had passed him by in silence, and had gone on to point out Jubilus Tarera, Pesuvius Calavius, and his son, Perola, the only companions present beside the hosts of the occasion. When the category was completed, however, she called the maid's attention to the omission. He? said the latter, lightly. The man in the violent tunic? He is nothing. A priest of one of their gods whom they call Melkarth. He was a tall, gaunt man, and he stood directly behind Hannibal, and kept his eyes fixed upon the pavement, as if studying the intricacies of its mosaic pattern. Selenius, the Greek red oar, made the last of the group, and now, at a signal from the hosts, the company turned and followed them in single file towards the rear of the house. They will send for you when they have reclined, said the attendant, in answer to a glance of inquiry from Marcia, and a moment later, the summons came. Walls, floors, ceilings, every part of the house through which they passed seemed covered with roses clustered, festooned, and superlaid. Suddenly they found themselves at the entrance of the great banquet hall, where two Tricinia were set facing each other, with room for the servants to pass between and minister to the wants of the feasters. At the table to the east, that of honor, reclined Stenius Ninius, in the middle place of the middle couch with Hannibal himself at his right, the place of honor above all. Marcia was led to the head of the lowest couch, next to the Carthaginian leader, where she found Pesuvius Calavius reclining below her, as the phrase went, while on the couch directly opposite lay the priest of Melkarth in the lowest place, and Parola in the highest. The other places, below Pesuvius, between Stenius and the priest, and between the priest and Parola, were assigned to the women, while the other table, over which Pesuvius Ninius presided, were arranged in similar fashion. End of section 19.